Good morning. So we go into the fall, uh, just a, a little bit of what's happening in the future. We were hoping that uh, we would have a pastor come so that my preaching time was going to be short here. And uh, so rather than take a book that was going to take us a longer time, uh, we decided to do one that would be short. And so uh, we're still going to do that, even though uh, I'm preparing that way. So we're going to look at the book of Esther. I love history, and uh, there's so many lessons to learn from that book. And so if you want to start to read that, get it familiar uh, in your minds, I encourage you to do so. I've been talking about heaven, and there's so much more that could be said about heaven. And I really encourage you, if you want to learn more about heaven, uh, buy Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. And uh, it just gives so much information there uh, about heaven. But if you have a question that I haven't answered, and there's so many questions uh, that I haven't answered, let me know. And I'll try to maybe just give a short answer at the beginning of a message in the future. But for today, we're going to finish up about heaven and actually not going to talk about heaven. But I want to talk about the impact that the thought of heaven should have on our lives. On April 20th, 1999, uh, grade 12 students, uh, Eric Harris and um, Dylan Klebold, walked into the Columbine High School and they killed uh, 12 students and one teacher. Many others were shot but survived. But one of those students that was killed was a teenager named Cassie. And when Cassie turned 15, her parents became very concerned about her. She became increasingly distant. Her best friend was openly hostile towards Cassie's parents. And one day, her mother discovered some letters in Cassie's room written by her friend to Cassie. And what she found just froze her in her tracks. There was a lot of talk about sex, alcohol, drugs, self-mutilation, stuff about Satan and vampires. But the most shocking were several letters in which Cassie's friend was encouraging Cassie to kill her parents and to solve her problems through that. There was even gruesome details of how she should do it and sketches on how to do it. And her mom, just days, she picked up the phone and uh, called her husband and asked him to come home immediately. Over the next few hours, they contacted the friend's mother. Uh, they contacted their pastor. They went to the sheriff. Uh, the police took it very seriously. They said they had never seen anything like this before. Uh, the courts uh, put a restraining order on Cassie's friend so that she could no longer see or contact Cassie. And Cassie was furious. But her parents felt, uh, held firm. Uh, she, Cassie was to have no freedom, no rights, no privileges, and no trust. She was going to have to start over again at square one and earn all those things back again. They took her out of high school and enrolled her in a private school. Eventually, they had to sell and move because her friends would not leave her alone. And uh, after moving, they enrolled her in a Christian school, and they tried to work on their relationship with her. And gradually, things began to change. She began to accept the boundaries that were placed on her, even becoming grateful for them. And then uh, one of her new friends invited her to a weekend youth retreat. And there God got through to her, and she cried and poured out her heart, asking God to forgive her. And she was a new person after that. Her eyes were bright. She smiled like she hadn't done for years. She began to treat her parents and her brother with love and respect. 
and she was coming back. There was hope. That summer, she transferred to Columbine High School, where she had a good friend there. She developed new interests, photography, nature, poetry, and Shakespeare. She began reading books that helped her in her relationship with God. And then one day, she was in the library, and she was confronted with two teenagers with guns in their hands. And they asked her a simple question. Do you believe in God? And she said, yes. And the next minute, she was in eternity. Later in her grief, Cassie's mom was reading through Cassie's journal. And Cassie had a quote that she'd highlighted in her journal. All of us should live life so as to be able to face eternity at any time. All of us should live life so as to be able to face eternity at any time. This is wisdom. To live in such a way that you're ready to enter into eternity at this very moment. Now what keeps us from that? Well, in 1 John, when we went through there, we found out from John that what keeps us from entering eternity in any moment, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's the love of this world. It's our sinful cravings and desires for what we see, the desire of possessions, the pride of what we do. Those are the things that keep us from being ready at any moment to enter eternity. Paul tells us, he says, set your minds, in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. It's our mindset on earthly things that keeps us from being ready to enter eternity. It's the love of this world that keeps us from being ready. But there's another reason I believe. This world is so immediate and heaven is, seems so distant. How many of you love Coke? Be honest. Few hands. How many of you love Pepsi? Okay, this is not for you, Pepsi guys. <laughs> I need a volunteer here, someone that loves Coke. Would you come forward? <laughs> the rest of you are just too slow, sorry. So, Byron, I'm giving you a choice here. You can have this can of Coke this morning, right now. Or, in 10 years, I'll give you something better than this can of Coke. <laughs> and I'm not telling you what it'll be. You don't know it. You can't imagine it. It might be a Coke plus five cents. <laughs> it might be a can of Coke plus $100. You can't imagine it. You don't know what's coming. And you're probably choice. thinking, that old geezer might not be here in 10 years. <laughs> and the deal is in 10 years, you have to ask me because I probably won't remember it in 10 years. Okay, I'll put it in my calendar. 
So which are you going to choose? The can of Coke now or something that may be better in 10 years? I'm curious to know what's in 10 years. So I'll take the 10 years and I'll put it in my calendar. You'll put it in your yeah, calendar? Because I can't wait to find out. Okay, good. You can sit down. I thought he would take the can of Coke here. <laughs> you will? It pays to speak up. <laughs> but you know, that's the reality is he chose what is distant and unknown. And the can of Coke was very immediate. And because this life is so immediate, we understand it, we know what it is. It's so easy to choose it over something that's unknown and not immediate. It's the distant future. I believe that hinders us so much. So this morning, I want to say to you, it's wisdom to realize that eternity is now. And now in two different senses. Now in the sense that you could be ushered into eternity at any moment. Many years ago, I was moose hunting back in the bush and I came close to killing myself. It was evening, it was pitch dark. I was crossing over a bridge, uh, crossing a bridge over a creek with my quad and uh, the bridge had been made by forestry workers and uh, it was just two poles across this creek uh, with um, pallets laid on top and uh, it was about five, six feet above the, the creek. And halfway across that creek, suddenly there was just a loud crack and the next thing I knew, I was flat on my back under two and a half feet of water with the quad upside down on top of me, pinning me down under there. And uh, with the quad and the gear that was on it, I estimated later about 800 pounds on top of me. My arms were pinned like this. I couldn't move them. And when you're like that, you have no power to, to lift. And I tried, and I couldn't move that quad. I was literally pinned there. I just couldn't move. And no one knew that it had happened. My partner was ahead of me far enough that by the time he realized something was wrong, I'd be dead. According to statistics, it takes anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes for an adult to drown. Most will drown in about a minute, no longer able to breathe and quickly lose consciousness. And so I didn't have a lot of time there. And that was my thought as I lay there pinned flat on my back under the water. My thought was, if I can't move this quad, I'm dead. My next thought was, that's okay. If I drown, then God, here I come. In the next few minutes, I will see you. You know, and I just had total peace laying there under the water, pinned under that quad. I then again tried to lift that quad up and it was just like suddenly that quad was just flung up and off and away from it. It didn't go up, it literally went out past my feet and was laying there on its side. I stood up, I was in water to my waist, the temperature was below freezing and I was soaked and very cold. Now how did I get that quad off of me? Did angels help? 
Will I one day in heaven, I'll meet an angel and he say, hey, I remember you. Do you remember that day you were pinned under the quad? You know, I don't know. Did an angel fling it off me? I don't know exactly what happened that day. But it brought home to me one thing. How quickly we can be fine with no thought of death. And the next minute we're in eternity. How quickly that can happen. The psalmist says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And his place remembers it no more. James said, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. We're experiencing that. All of Esther's beautiful flowers got frozen the other day. They're dead. The psalmist said, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days like a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is like a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. What's the psalmist saying? He's praying that God would give him a continual sense that life could end at any moment. He wants to live as though death could come right now and he'd be ready to die. And so that's wisdom is to know that eternity is now in the sense that we could die at any moment and be ushered into God's presence. We should live in a way that we're ready for that at any moment. But there's a second way that we need to look at eternity is now. We're already in eternity. Right now, you're in eternity Human conception is the only event in history where something eternal begins in a moment of time. An eternal soul begins at the moment of conception. And from that moment of conception on, that soul is an eternity. You've been in eternity already for the lifespan that you've lived. So every person that's born is eternal. They'll live forever. The question is simply where will they live? With God in heaven or without God in hell? Now in the context of wisdom, it's important to understand that this moment of life right now is part of eternity. Because while this life is such a small part of eternity, it greatly affects all of your eternity. Paul said in Romans 14.10, he says, We will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so how you live this moment today impacts your experience, not only of this life, but is impacting your experience of heaven for all eternity. Paul's saying the day is coming that we're going to have to give an account of how we live our lives now. And for us as believers, that's not an account to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell. 
That's an account where God determines how he's going to reward you for all eternity. And so we need to ex- uh, just realize that it's wisdom to understand that how we live our now is impacting our all eternity. So Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, that how we live now makes that difference. He says our, we make our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body now or whether we're away from it, we're with him. Because we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each will receive what is due him for the things done while he's in the body, whether good or bad. And so Paul says, my driving force in this life, because I'm going to have to give that accounting, is that my goal is to please him. And it's not going to just be my goal to please him now, even when I'm dead, that goal carries on for all eternity. Jesus, talking about this, says that even if you give a cup of cold water in his name, you will not lose your reward in heaven. What's he saying? Even the little things of this life, the insignificant things, are making a difference of your experience of heaven. Far too many believers are only concerned about making it to heaven, They think no further than they want to escape hell and they want to be in heaven. How foolish that is. Randy Elkhorn said, a moment after a man dies, he knows exactly how he should have lived. Johnny Hunt said, I wish now to live in a way that I would have hoped I had once I get to heaven. And so wisdom is to live with eternity always in view. When I was a teenager, Chick Publications uh, put out a gospel track. And the gospel track uh, is in cartoon form. It told the story of a king who had a court jester, a fool. Someone who acted like a fool in order to entertain. And the king was very happy with him and he thought that he had the greatest fool in the country. And one day he presented the fool with a golden scepter and he said, go out through my kingdom, travel the kingdom searching for a greater fool than you are. And if you find a greater fool than you, I want you to give him this golden scepter. And for a year, the fool traveled the kingdom finding no one that was a greater fool than he was. Finally, coming back to the court, he found the king sick in bed and dying. At that, the jester, the fool asked the king if he was ready to die. Had he prepared himself for this day of death? To which the king replied that he was not ready to die. And at that moment, the fool then handed him the golden scepter. He found a greater fool than he was himself. There's a reality to this story. Everyone who has lived for this life and not for the Lord, when they meet the Lord face to face, they're going to think of themselves as a fool for not living for him, for not living every moment of this life with eternity in view. When we keep eternity in view, here's what it does for us. Paul says when we keep eternity in view, our goal is to please him. You cannot have eternity in view without adopting that as the goal of your life. 
That's what it does to you. To please him, that's the purpose of our salvation. If you think that God just saved you to keep you from hell, you're greatly mistaken. Yes, saved from hell is a great benefit. But God's purpose in saving you was so that you could please him. And saving you from your sins was a necessary step in that process, but it isn't the end goal of your life. And for too many believers, they think if they become saved, they've reached their goal. No, you've just taken a step towards the goal. Isaiah 22, the Israelites were walking far from him, and he says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. He was calling them to sorrow over their sin and to repent. But instead, he said, What I, God, see in your life is there's joy and reverie. You're partying. Eating of meat and drinking of wine, you say, let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. And so instead of living, instead they were living to please their, themselves, their attitude was, I only have one short life to live, and so I'm going to get everything I can out of this life. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to complete my bucket list in this life. Instead, he says, they should have been thinking, I have eternal life, so therefore I'm going to live to please God. You see, that's the difference of attitude. The one that's living for this life is thinking, I have one short life to live. And that impacts how he lives then. The other person has the attitude, I have eternal life. And that impacts his attitude. Jesus told the parable of a rich farmer who lived entirely for himself, so much more uh, so that he had no more room to store what he had. And his answer was, well, I'm going to just build bigger granaries. I'm going to go bigger. Why stop here? Maybe he was going to buy more land and invest more money. Certainly he was going after more pleasure, it tells us. And God says, you're a fool because this very night, you're going to die and you're going to be in eternity. And then who's going to get what all that you've been working hard for? Jesus said, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You lose nothing by having that eternal perspective and seeking to please him. And you have everything to gain. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You have everything to gain for all eternity. And if you have not been living this way up to today, today is the day to start. You can still impact your eternity. And so learn to live your now with an eternal perspective. Living our now means to live with that view of pleasing Jesus. For the disciples, it meant leaving their jobs, their businesses, their homes, and following Jesus. For others in the early church, it meant just living ordinary lives. Yet those lives were lived to please him. 
Living your now for Jesus to please him will look different for each of you. Don't compare yourself to each other. It'll look different for each of you. When I was a teenager, our church was, uh, Avon Glen Church was building a parsonage or a manse. And we'd start it, and suddenly out of the blue, the stranger showed up riding on a bicycle. I believe his name was David. No one knew him or where he'd come from, but he'd heard somewhere that the church was building a manse, and he'd come to help. He told us his story. He'd grown up in Africa. His dad had uh, owned a banana plantation, and when his dad passed away, he'd inherited that, and um, he then sold the banana plantation, and uh, if he lived a life of poverty, he had it all figured out. He had enough money to live for the rest of his life, and he could devote his life to helping mission organizations and churches. And what his skill was, was working with his hands, doing carpentry. And he felt God was calling him to devote that skill to help the church. And so he was there. Simply said, I'm here to work. Put a hammer in my hand, tell me what to do. I'll do it. Some ways we felt that he was a little different. He wouldn't accept hospitality from anyone. That was too comfortable. Different ones offered to take him in and he could live with them and no. He, my dad had an old camper that he had built many years before. It was just a shell. He wanted to move into that and live there. His food was overripe bananas that the store sold at a discount. This was his way of stringing his money out until for his life. He claimed that bananas contained all that you needed and they were not ripe until they were going black and mushy. And so he came into Wainwright here, he went around to all the stores and said, I want to buy your older bananas at a discount. Save them for me, I'll take them all. And they did that. He was skinny, he maintained his weight to an exact weight. He borrowed my parents' weigh scale and he would weigh himself every day and he would adjust his consumption of bananas. And one day he left the weigh scale on the floor of the shop and uh, I had a motorcycle and I came into the shop on my motorcycle and coming out of the bright sunlight into the darkness of the shop, I didn't see the scale there on the floor and I ran right over it and it sounded like glass breaking. And um, I went back and I picked up the scale and it looked okay and I stood on it and uh, it gave me a weight that I thought was close to what I should be. So. I just left the scale there and I didn't think anything more about it. But suddenly he was eating bananas like crazy. <laughs> but he must have wondered because after a while he went to my uncle's and said, can I use your scale? And then suddenly he was dieting like crazy. He brought the scale into the house and he told my dad, he said he didn't think the scale was weighing properly anymore. But you know, when the manse was finished, he simply got on his bicycle and he disappeared out of our lives. Now is that what it means to live with an eternal perspective? He thought so. For himself. Not for you or anyone else. But he thought that that was what God, he believed it firmly that God had called him to live a life of poverty and to devote his skills to helping churches and missions. He did it to please the Lord. 
Had God really asked such a life of him? Well, that's a question between him and his maker. I just know that we were blessed by him. His motive was right. He sought to live his life to please the Lord. Your story may be similar. It may be different. But the common theme to all of us, if we are keeping eternity in view, we will be seeking to live our lives in a way that pleases the Lord. For most of us, it simply means bringing daily our thoughts and actions under his control. Are you a mom? Be a mom that pleases the Lord. Are you a dad? Be a dad that pleases the Lord. Are you an employee? Work in a way that pleases the Lord. Are you an employer, business owner? Conduct your business in a way that pleases the Lord. Do you enjoy the pleasures of this life? Enjoy and living them out, live them out in a way that pleases the Lord. We all have time. It's using our time that, in a way that pleases the Lord. We all have abilities. It's putting your abilities at his disposal in a way that pleases the Lord. On it goes. Doing all things in such a way that if this were the moment that you were to enter eternity, that you would do so with no regrets. The thought of heaven, the thought of eternity ought to be profoundly impacting how we live the present moment. Because in the present moment, you are in eternity. Hebrews 11 has a list of the heroes of faith. It talks of Abraham who was willing to leave his country and his family and all that behind. And he went to a distant land, a strange land. And he spent his life moving around in tents. It tells us the story of others that were willing to face persecution, being driven from home, losing everything. Some of them having to live in caves. Others being killed for their faith. Now why were all these willing to live in these different ways? Because they were looking forward to heaven. It says they were looking forward to a heavenly city. And so that impacted how they were willing to live their lives now. And then it finishes with this. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared a city for them. Everyone that is willing to live with eternity in view now. Living to please the Lord. God is going to say to each one of you, I am not ashamed to be called yours, God. So keep your focus on what's coming, heaven. Your focus on heaven, uh, eternity. If you have an eternal focus, you'll be motivated to live to please him now. Gladstone was one of the great prime ministers of England made a huge difference on the country. And shortly before he died, Gladstone gave a speech in which he told about being visited by an ambitious young man who sought his advice about life. And the young man said to the elder statesman, he said, I admire you more than anyone that's living, and I want to have your advice regarding my career. And so Gladstone said, well, what do you hope to do when you graduate from college? And the young man said, well, I hope to attend law school then after that, sir, just as you did. Well, that's a noble goal, Gladstone said. Then what? I hope to practice law and make a good name for myself, defending the poor and the outcasts of society, just as you did. Well, that's a noble purpose. Then what? 
Well, sir, I hope one day to stand for Parliament and become a servant of the people just as you did. That too is noble. What then? I would hope to be able to serve in the Parliament with great distinction, showing integrity and concern for justice, even as you did. What then? I would hope to serve the government as Prime Minister with the same vigor, dedication, vision, and integrity that you've done. And what then, asked Gladstone? I would hope to retire with honors and write my memoirs, even as you are presently doing, so that others could learn from my mistakes and triumphs. That Gladstone said, well, that's all very noble. What then? The young man thought for a moment. He says, well, sir, I suppose I will then die. That's correct, answered Gladstone. And then what? The young man looked puzzled, and he said, well, sir, I've never given that any thought. And this was Gladstone's answer to him. He says, young man, the only advice I have for you is for you to go home Read your Bible and think about eternity. That advice is still good advice for us this morning. To go home and think about eternity. Let's pray. Father, as praying the psalmist's prayer, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my life, years, is as nothing before you. My life is but a breath. I am a mere phantom as I go to and fro. I bustle about, but only in vain. I heap up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Therefore, show me, O Lord, my life's end, and the number of my days, and let me know how fleeting is my life.